lament is everyone's experience. And as you heard from our three friends, lament takes many forms. It has several layers. It can be both personally felt and widely noticed. Lament and its reasons for it are everywhere. And that's why we've created this service to remind ourselves that lament is actually a rather normal expression of faith, a normal experience of it. It is not foreign to it. It is not an abnormal experience of it, which may lead you then to wonder, how does a service or a liturgy about lament square with this sermon series that we're talking about, about adoration? The carol invites us to come and adore him. And we've been asking from last week, and we will for the rest of Advent, what does that mean? What is adoration? And why is it fitting? And how is it done? And each week, in order to understand it better, we're going to a text of Scripture in which at some point, somebody in the passage finds themselves bowing at the feet of Jesus for any number of reasons. This Sunday, the text that we're about to read is certainly about someone bowing at the feet of Jesus, but you might not think it has anything to do with adoration because why this person is bowing at his feet is significantly about their anguish. And so the question is, what does adoration have to do with anguish? Do they coexist? Do they go together at all? We're going to read a passage that you may be familiar with, maybe too familiar with, but I think it has something to tell us about how we think of adoration in our seasons of anguish. Let's listen again to John chapter 11, and we're going to stop at verse 37. Our central text for today is found in John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of his, this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in her home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Three siblings, two sisters, one brother. You know Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha show up prominently in Luke 10. Jesus comes over to their house for dinner. Martha starts feverishly preparing this whatever wonderful meal, complete with all the trappings. Mary just sits there listening and learning. Martha gets a little upset about her sister just listening and learning, which in that day for a woman to, to listen and learn from a rabbi would have been unheard of. Martha's upset. Why can't she help me? Jesus chides Martha. Martha, you're worried about so many things, but, but Mary has come for the one thing needed and it won't be taken from her. And so in that moment, in Luke 10, you, you understand a little bit of the rivalry that exists between Martha and Mary. That's, that's not the case in this passage. It's amazing what happens uh, in relationships where there are differences when, when suffering comes on the scene. Because in this moment, as you just heard, um, their brother Lazarus is sick. And it's not an ordinary sickness, it's a grave sickness. And so what would Mary and Martha do? They hear that Jesus is close, and they send him a message that says, One whom you love is ill. Translation, it's bad, Jesus. Come quickly. And as you heard in the story, uh, Jesus 
doesn't immediately drop everything and go. In fact, he pauses for two more days. He doesn't come for two more days, and he has his reasons, and, and those that are waiting for him to come find those reasons rather opaque, but there is one thing that is clear that you hear mentioned no fewer than five times in this passage, and that Jesus has great love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's unequivocal, which makes his choice, his delay, that much more bizarre. All he had to have done, it's a, it's a, it's a 45-minute walk, but he waits two days. He hears about it, he waits, and then he goes, and we could spend a lot of time just focusing on Jesus because this passage certainly does, but what I really want to do is focus on Mary and Martha because they're what drives the moment. Martha's got a Martha, and her brother has died, and she hears that Jesus is coming, and she does what Martha usually does. She, she gets up, she bolts, she runs, she heads to him, she, she shows up, she meets him, and, and then she says to him, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Imagine saying that to an ER doctor who was a friend of yours. If you had been here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. If you're a witness, you're, you have sympathy for where she's coming from. Her brother has died, and yet you, you're astonished at her forthrightness, which speaks to the kind of relationship that she has with Jesus. But yet, just before you start to get a little bit too amazed or astonished at what she says, she quickly follows it up with, but I know, I, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. She is persuaded in that moment that whatever grief she has, she doesn't understand why he would have waited two days, waited long enough for her brother to die, but at least she believes this, this Jesus, whoever he may be, has some sort of direct line to God, and she gets that. And that's Martha's particular experience. We listen to that and we wonder, and by the end of their conversation, what Martha has learned is this. Whatever hope of resurrection that she has had or that she has been taught, it is more than ought to be just a general hope. That that hope, by the time of the end of her conversation with Jesus, has come to this, that that resurrection is actually bound up with him that he is not just one to remind her of that hope, but that that hope is bound up with him, in him. And as soon as Martha hears that, she says, Mary's got to hear this. And Jesus wants her to hear this. And so she bolts back to Mary, and she says to Mary, Mary, he's coming, and he wants to talk with you. And it's only then that Mary, which is where I want to focus, responds in a particular way. She's finally roused from whatever contemplation she is having there in her home in Bethany. She rises to her feet. She goes to meet him. And what does she do? She does what nobody else in the passage does. She falls at his feet in her tears. She could have done a lot of things. She could have done a lot of things. She could have stayed in her home almost as a defiant act of disappointment with him. She could have stared him in the face as if to say, you have failed us. She could have looked at him and in as many words said, go jump in the lake. But even with her brother's dead, and now this Jesus has come, she falls 
at her feet. She falls to her knees at his feet. Why? It's an adoration. It's an adoration with tears. And then she says to him practically the identical same line that her sister Martha has said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, she believes that he's Lord. You're Lord and, and you are able and, and for whatever reason you didn't. Scholars who have been reading this passage for the longest of times ha have, have debated what, what does Mary represent? Does, does she represent a, a faith that's even more robust than her sister's Martha or, or not? And, and there are some scholars that look at Mary's response in this moment and they, and they conclude that she demonstrates an even greater faith, a more robust faith. She has sat in contemplation um, without being perturbed even by the death of her own brother there in her household. And so she doesn't rush like her sister Martha does. And so there is composure there. There is a kind of a contentment even in her sorrow. That's what some scholars say. Whereas others, they would say that actually Martha demonstrates more faith, that Mary is actually more of a complainer. Even in her adoration, she's complaining. She, she does come to Jesus. She does fall at his feet before Jesus. But with her words, you hear her say, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. And, and she doesn't follow that up like Martha does with, a, with another affirmation of faith in him. In fact, if you, if you look really closely at the grammar between their two sentences, between Martha and Mary, Mary's words come off even a little bit stronger when it's almost as if she's saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Whether you can understand that Mary's faith is greater than Martha's or whether it is not as much, whatever you can believe, you can believe this, that Mary in that moment is the embodiment. It is the embodiment of anyone who has ever loved and lost with faith in the Lord. We resonate with her. She resonates with us. She is where all of us go at some point or have to go at some point when we're facing that which is full of sorrow and suffering. Something grave happens. We begin to plead with the Lord for help. We seek his assistance. We offer any number of prayers and then tragedy falls. And the reason they call it tragedy is because it usually feels very final and unalterable. And then we're faced with a dilemma. The dilemma of reckoning with the fact that we've been told and heard a lot of things about God. We've heard that he is, that he is good, that he is not silent, that he superintends all things. We've heard that. We've, we've come to believe that. We've come to rest in that. And maybe we've even had experiences to, to reconfirm that. And now we have some new experience, some new data, and we don't know what to do with that. Where God doesn't act as we think he might have, or at least not acting in the way that we hoped that he would. And we ask ourselves, what to do now? What does it mean to believe? And in that dilemma, we, we might be thinking that we should just sort of face it unperturbed. But we know that feels more stoic than really faithful. And if anything, we think it probably isn't very healthy to pretend like it doesn't hurt. And yet here we are, 
with a certain expectation of how things would be, and now we have lost in a profound way, and this world is now suddenly thrust into disorientation. We're not in the world that we thought we were in. This is not the way I thought things would be. And so we ask ourselves, what does it mean to believe? Some see Mary as a model of faith. Some see Mary, however, as one who is drifting from that faith. But I think Mary has for us two lessons that have to do with adoration and anguish. I think the first thing we learn from Mary's experience with Jesus there is that adoration and anguish are not opposites. Uh, lament and adoring are expressions of one another. In her, what we see by bowing at his feet, that she believes him to be Lord, and, and that hasn't changed, and, and she brings her complaint to him. She brings her lament to him. If you had been here, if you had been here, none of this would have happened. That's, that's lament. And even in that season, we, 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 even in that moment that, that happens so quickly, we have to realize that adoration and anguish do not live on separate continents. They're not identical, but they certainly go together. And you may ask, why do I even need to harp on that? What's, what's the point? What's, what deep theological truth is there? I'll tell you why. Because there are two temptations in the middle of our sorrows and our laments. One is letting our adoration exclude us from anguish. And, and the second is, is to let our anguish lead us to drift from adoration. Let me take each of those briefly, but in succession. When it comes to adoration, adoration before the Lord never excludes the possibility of expressing our anguish before him too. We ought never understand those to be as mutually exclusive experiences. All you have, if we knew nothing about Jesus, if we knew nothing about John chapter 11, all you have to do is turn to the Psalms and you see adoration and anguish in the same breath. Expressions of bewilderment about why the Lord has acted as he was and yet with praise, even through tears, those things go together. It's the, it's the nature of adoration. It's the nature of anguish to express those things unto the Lord rather than off in a corner apart from him. From a, a very different vantage point, there was a, there's a, name, a, a, a Navy admiral by the name of Jim Stockdale. I think he actually ran for vice president a couple decades ago. But he said something about leadership that is, that is also true of life. He said this, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. In other words, it is both fine and necessary to have hope in what will prevail, but never at the expense of really reckoning with what gives you pause, if not sorrow, and lament. They go together. They operate in the same worlds. Anguish is its own, lament is its own expression of adoration. They go together. That's one temptation. And that's why we need to hear that adoration and anguish are not opposites. But there's another temptation that's probably more common and it's certainly more natural. And that's when our anguish leads us to drift 
from our adoration. It is natural. That drift is real. And if, if I could maybe put it in really simplest terms, that drift looks like this. It goes from in the middle of your sorrow saying, Lord, I don't get this. To at some point saying, Lord, you don't get this. That's a shift. That might feel like a subtle shift, and yet it is a most profound shift. A name I've mentioned to you before, his name is John Flavel. He was a, um, a, a Presbyterian minister of the 17th century. He was imprisoned for preaching at a time when it was illegal to preach. He lost three wives in death, the first of which died in childbirth, and the child died at the same time as his first wife died. So he knew a few things about grief. And he even wrote a book called Facing Grief, which is a hard book, which is a book that, that ought to be read in a particular season and not just without a certain preparation, because what he has to say is perhaps requiring a special set of circumstances in which to hear it properly. But in that book, as, as perhaps difficult as it might be to hear what he has to say, he does help you know how to navigate the moment in which you feel deeply disoriented by your sorrow. And so he says in that book this, we must allow the mourning afflicted soul a due and comely expression of his grief and sorrow in his complaints to both God and men. There is no sin in complaining to God but much wickedness in complaining of him. Why does Flavel go so far as to say that there's a wickedness to experience that drift in which you, as if to say, hold up a high-fisted, high-handed argument against God that he has failed you? Why is that wicked? You might think of wickedness in this sense. To complain to God is natural. It is as natural as a child complaining to their parent of whatever that they are lamenting. But when you start complaining of God, what does it presume? That you know better. That you know better than him. Beloved, I know in sorrow it is proper to be bewildered and anguished but we will never know more than him. Even if that answers none of our questions, even if that tempers none of our grief, we will never know more than him. And that's why we have to talk about how adoration and anguish go together. That's what keeps anguish from letting our adoration drift into something like bitterness. But, there, but there's, there's the question, right? If adoration and anguish are not opposites, and if it is our adoration that keeps our anguish from leading to bitterness, how, how does that happen? How do we keep that drift from becoming a real drift into something far worse than anguish? You've got to go back and put your eyes on Mary. Because... However you might interpret her response to Jesus, whether you find it favorably or unfavorable, you still have to give thanks for her. You have to give thanks for her because she offers us that other lesson about anguish and about adoration. And let me put it in these ways by backing up just a little bit to her experience with Jesus. The most 
gripping thing that happens in this episode has very little to do with what Jesus says. It has everything to do with Jesus' actions. Because it describes him there with a tearful Mary at his feet and others around weeping at the, at the grief over dead Lazarus. It, it speaks of Jesus' inner life and it speaks of him as deeply moved in spirit. It, it speaks of him as troubled. And, and then all of that erupts into speaking of Jesus as weeping. And it is a rare moment in the New Testament to ever hear of Jesus' inner emotional life being described. But in that moment, it is more than just sorrow that has come over Jesus. This is Jesus being beside himself. One of those Greek words to describe that inner emotional state is the same word you might use to refer to a snorting horse that is erupting with a kind of anger. This is outrage we see in Jesus. This is indignation that we are hearing from Jesus. This is in so many words without saying something. This is Jesus saying before the tomb of his friend, this is madness. This is madness that this man, this friend of mine has died. This is madness that the world is as it is. This is madness. And he gives that off. And in that moment, with Mary weeping and him barely contained, you might be asking the question, so what? I mean, it's a remarkable moment to describe, but what does that have for us? I'll tell you by way of very personal illustration. Almost 15 years ago, many of you know that we lost a daughter. But on the day that we buried her, I have one very distinct memory of her funeral service. It was of a friend of ours whose name is Michelle. And Michelle, like many that day, came to mourn with us. But Michelle was different. And though she did not see me, I saw her. And what I saw her in her face was her tears. And you might think that to be an unremarkable discovery, and yet it said something to me that I remember to this day, and that is this. Her tears meant something more than sorrow. Her tears meant that she got this moment, and that she got us in that moment. And that meant something. It meant that we could feel a little less alone. Because is it not one of the many stings of grief for any of us that have lamented a sorrowful time to feel like you are on some remote island to which no one had ever come and no one would ever care to visit. She got us and that meant the world. And for Jesus in that moment to be weeping alongside one who was bowing at his feet in adoration, also weeping, in that moment we came to understand that Mary for all of her grief, was understood by her Lord. And I think that moment has the most profound lesson for us about how we think about our anguish. And I think it gives us some guidance for us in our lament. And that guidance is this. In the midst of our anguish, we must hold up his anguish and see it at the same time. When any of us are sorrowful, with both of our eyes, we tend to focus almost entirely on that which brings us sorrow, and it's both understandable and natural. But I think what this moment has for us, this lesson that we all have to bring forth to us, is that when we are looking at our anguish, we have to at least put one eye on his anguish. And I mean his anguish in two ways. First of all, his anguish 
over our anguish. Jesus is weeping for his friend. Jesus is for, who has died. Jesus is weeping for his friends who remain alive. And in that weeping, he is demonstrating his love. As if there were any question. He is sharing in their grief. He is sharing in their anguish. And therefore he is confirming their love. And if that is true of his anguish for their anguish. Then that is equally true in his anguish for our anguish. He anguishes for what we are sorrowful for. And we have to hold that up and put it in one eye. While we can't stop looking at the thing that gives us rise to anguish. We have to hold up his anguish for our anguish. And at the same time, though, we have to hold up his anguish for a different kind of anguish that he experienced. For an anguish that he experienced to deliver us from all the things that cause us our anguish. He experienced that. You'll notice that in the passage that we read that we stopped at verse 37. With Mary there at his feet weeping. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that right in just a few moments, Lazarus will be raised from the dead. And the reason I stopped our passage at that passage, at that verse, is because you know where we are? We're all in verse 37. We're all at the midpoint. We're all in the middle of what gives rise to sorrow and lament. And that's why we stop there. But after that, story ends and after Lazarus is raised and one chapter later in chapter 12 they're all reclining at table and there's Lazarus and you got a man you wish you could ask the question Lazarus what was it like right but there they are Jesus and Lazarus and what's Martha doing Martha's gonna Martha she's up putting everything together to make it a wonderful spread her brother's alive and Jesus her Lord is here and it's because of him because I am the resurrection of life and what's Mary doing she walks in with a, a flask of very expensive ointment and she breaks that ointment open and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. Bookmark that. A story like that's coming next week. And in that moment, what does Judas do? He chides this expensive, extravagant demonstration of affection for him, of adoration. And what does Jesus do? He, he pushes back against Judas and he lauds Mary. Why? Because he says to her, she's doing this for the day of my burial. The day of my anguish. And whether she was aware fully of what Jesus meant by that comment, at least she had a sense that what Jesus was speaking of is that he would come to enter into this world to render a death blow to death, and he would do so by entering into his own season of anguish. And that is the other aspect of his anguish that we have to hold up against ours. Sarah Groves is a songwriter, and she recently told a story in an interview from several months ago about a cellist by the name of Vedran Smilovic, who during the Bosnian War took it upon himself to go to every bomb crater and every bombed out building in the midst of that war as an act of protest and take his cello and play an adagio in G minor by a composer named Albayoni. Imagine a, a cellist in the middle of a bomb crater playing something of great sorrow, but of also great beauty. And the reason Sarah Groves told that story is because that story she wanted to live out. She says, this is the story of Jesus. He leaves a perfect place 
to climb down into our bomb crater and plays a song, the most beautiful song I have ever heard. I want to be found playing that song. That's the gospel. That's the good news, even in the midst of a liturgy in blue, even in the midst of whatever lament, whether it's an advent or not, that Jesus has climbed down from a beautiful place into the bomb crater of our life and let himself have the crosshairs of humanity, the crosshairs of destruction put upon him and him to suffer a death that he might render a death blow to death itself. At risk of trivializing a story like that by quoting to you a comedian who was nevertheless a sage comedian, it was Stephen Colbert who said that this week in an article this, the message of Christ isn't that you can kill me. The message of Christ is you can kill me and that's not death. The message of Jesus and the reason that at our death it's not death is because he entered into his own anguish for our sake and then lived to prevail over it. That's why adoration and anguish go together. And that's why in the midst of whatever anguish we're experiencing, we have to hold up his anguish alongside our own. Because in that is adoration, while at the same time, it is lament. And that is his grace to us. And that is what we need in the season. Oh, come let us adore him. Amen.